This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manese. On today's show, we report from the Venice Biennale in Italy, one of the world's most important architecture events. We'll speak with a host of participants, including Theasta Gates, Maria Misafukamara, and the team behind the Nordic Pavilion. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Welcome to today's show, coming to you directly from the Giardini Biennale. Here, the Venice Biennale's International Architecture Exhibition is now open to the public until November. At its pavilions and in the halls of the Arsenale nearby, participating designers will present their responses to curator Leslie Locko's The Laboratory of the Future theme. The Ghanaian Scottish Architects Brief encourages designers to create installations unpacking architectural concepts alongside models of built work. To help set the scene, I'm starting today's show with Monocle's design correspondent, Stella Ruse. Stella, welcome to the Biennale. Thank you, Nick. You've been out and about in Venice over the last few days. You actually beat me here. You were quite eager. You were here on, here on Wednesday, even though the press preview officially kicked off on Thursday. I guess you've seen a little bit more than me, and I've, I've kind of been relying on you a little bit to, to provide some insight. I mean, were there, were there any standout highlights for you that, that you've seen? I just couldn't wait, and I've been running around for the past three days, uh, all through the Giardini and the Arsenale. And of course, it's still impossible to see everything, but this far, I have to say, the pavilions that have struck me the most are really the ones that took something really simple, like a brick, and just went with it. So there's the Swiss pavilion, um, where they essentially just knock down a wall between the Swiss pavilion and the Venezuelan pavilion, which is designed by Carlos Garpa, and also made this amazing, like, 10-meter-long carpet with the floor plans of the two pavilions. It was just something really simple and really beautiful and also kind of fun coming from Switzerland, um, saying that we should knock down the borders between countries. That was actually one of my favourite pavilions as well. I think it shows the power of... I guess relying on a on a physical act or or a, or a physical embodiment of an idea rather than just I guess text on a wall or or you know there's been plenty of films and lots of those have been strong and that's been in response to wanting to lower the carbon footprint so maybe not bringing or shipping in materials so I understand where that's coming from but I think pavilions like the Swiss pavilion where it was a simple move you know pulling down the fence between it and the Venezuelan pavilion. Uh, it's, it's a simple move, but a physical one and, and one that you can, I guess, grasp really concretely, really, really quickly, you know, and, and, and interpret it in, in, I guess, whichever way you see, sort of see fit. Both of us sort of read it as like, hey, there's this country that's, you know, sort of typically kind of seen as locked off in the centre of Europe that's really talking about the need to embrace its neighbours and, and open up a little bit. Another, I guess, installation was was landscape architect Walter Hood who presented in the main exhibition. He, he had his own sort of presentation area where he had models of, of projects he's worked on, but he also took over one of the gardens inside and installed, I guess, his own take on the, on the wetland. And immediately you can, you can sort of see the impact or the fact that architecture needs to go beyond just considering the immediate skeleton of a building and really needs to start looking toward landscape architecture and other disciplines in, in the way that they practice. And again, I think that's that's one of those things that you can pick up quickly without having to rely on, on, on reading copious amounts of text. Right. I mean, this might be a pretty provocative idea, but I would almost love to see a Biennale where there's a total ban on any writing. Architects, I think, 
it's good when they focus on the stuff that they're really good at, which is building stuff. To be honest, most people who walk around the Biennale, they just can't take in so much text. And we've just seen also over the past few days really the stuff that's super simple. One idea that's just built out of a materialist simplest brick is really what also stays with you. Are there any, uh, I guess, themes that, that have emerged, that have, uh, have appealed or, or jumped out at you? Are there any sort of strong threads that are running through this whole Biennale? A focus on maybe the less glamorous aspects of architecture and design. So, I mean, there's a German pavilion, for example, that basically just gathered all the construction waste from the last year's Art Biennale and put it inside um, the pavilion. Also built a dry toilet um, inside. The Finnish pavilion is all about dry toilets this year. There's a lot of toilets. <laughs> and a lot of people are talking about toilets and then there's the Dutch pavilion that's talking about our water use and our water systems and really kind of digging into the stuff that maybe is not so so glamorous to talk about but but that is also very important. I think it's about architecture I guess maybe not necessarily being about just the, the beauty even though beauty is in, incredibly important I mean I spoke to Alexandra Hagen as well of, of white architecture and, and talked to her about you know the, the importance of beauty and, and there's almost a sustainability thread to that where if, if you don't make beautiful architecture people aren't going to want to keep it so you can still use simple materials you know maybe the raw unsexy things but it, it still needs to be beautiful and, and perhaps the finished toilet is a, is a good example of that I, I actually really enjoyed it it was all made out of timber that the seat was absolutely lovely it was some sort of recomposed plastic but it looked beautiful and it, and it looked quality and I think maybe that's that's another thread that was always going to be running through this Biennale it's it's like the importance of sustainability and I know from talking to you off air we we kind of discussed you know, the, the fact that materials seem to be really, really front and centre for a lot of this. And speaking of materials, one architect I met who does that really, really well is Mariam Kamara. Uh, she's the founder of Atelier Mazomi, which is based in Niamey, the capital of Niger. She dropped the career in computer science and went back to her home country and started building with earth, which had essentially been forgotten as a construction method and is building incredible buildings. I mean, they are absolutely amazing. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of, of Mariam Isafu Kamara and the, and the work that she does. So she presented in the general exhibition and we're going to hear a little bit from your conversation with her now. We're in the central pavilion in the Giardini in one of the first rooms that you see when you enter. And it's your installation titled Process. So what does that refer to? Ultimately, it refers to the process of making architecture that we've developed, especially working in Niger, but that's also become more general approach to architecture, a process that is about looking at the situation in which we're in, the, the precedents that are not necessarily what we think of as orthodox precedents, you know, when you go into architecture education. It's about the process of discovery, you know, ultimately this discovery that yields an architecture that somehow feels true to the place it's meant for. The walls are covered in kind of blown up technical drawings that have been painted recently and they're juxtaposed with some models of your projects. Why did you choose to make this juxtaposition? 
It was sort of an introspection, I would say. I was sent back to an early childhood memory when I was thinking about this installation of growing up in the Sahara Desert and going with my family to visit these Neolithic caves and mountains that had these Neolithic carvings on them of different scenes, you know, um, pastoral scenes, hunting scenes, animals, people, and really sort of getting this sense of the history of the people I'm from at the end of the day. And there was something incredibly powerful about that, the sensation of belonging to something so much larger than what we're typically told we belong to. This idea, especially for the African continent, that it's almost as though we didn't exist before colonization. And for me, that notion never impacted me because I had this early experience of feeling like I was walking through a history book. So in a way, this installation is a nod to that memory of putting on the wall these symbols of, again, this architecture that predates coloniality, that is a great source of inspiration. And it's also almost a critique at knowledge. I decided to blow them up and draw them by hand almost to reappropriate them and to reappropriate this knowledge, ultimately. And one of the projects you're presenting here is the Hikma Community Complex. Um, and it's one of your early projects that was completed in 2018. Tell me more about how that came about and how it was built. I mean, the project almost happened by accident. There was this old mosque um, in a village, actually, that my family is affiliated with on my dad's side that I knew about. And I discovered over the years that it had been built by a mason um, who won an Aga Khan Prize for architecture for a very similar mosque, actually. And it turns out that it's, it was one of a collection of four mosques that were kind of similar. And um, the people from the village wanted to destroy it and build something out of concrete, you know, similar to it in the hopes that it would last longer and wouldn't need as much maintenance. And there was a budget. And I made the argument that not only should we preserve it, because it's really sort of a um, natural treasure at this point, but that we could preserve it, turn it into something potentially, and create a new mosque that would have the capacity that the village required and come under budget. So that was essentially the, um, the challenge, how to do that. But I was confident we could do that because the budget they had was for making a fortified concrete, you know, bunker sort of building. And if we use local materials, I was quite confident that we could come in under budget. And that's what we did. So instead of just creating one mosque, we ended up developing a whole community complex, all with library, you know, workshop, study rooms for, for students, different places, indoor and outdoor, where there could really be an additional life, a civic life, you know, a cultural life, educational life inside of what was meant to be a place of worship only. I heard that you're going back there soon to work again. Do you want to tell me why that is? Yes, actually, we were asked since last year to, um, to come back and add an extension to, to the complex. It's been so successful, especially when it comes to workshops related to women's need to there are all kinds of uh, courses that happen there, you know, from sewing classes to literacy courses, accounting courses, furniture making, and they have essentially run out of space. So they've asked us to come and double the amount of workshop spaces we currently have so that they can fully take advantage of the complex. So that's, that's been quite wonderful to hear, and we'll be heading there in a couple of months. And Miriam, you were, first you studied computer science and worked for years as a software engineer. 
So what was it that prompted you to make the switch and go back to school and study architecture? Coming from Africa and having the opportunity to go study really far in the U.S., it seemed that the reasonable thing to do was to study something like engineering, you know, or be a doctor, which I'm afraid of needles, so that was not possible. So engineering seemed to make sense, so I became a computer engineer because of that. But the desire to be an architect never really left me. A few years after starting my career as software engineer, I started realizing also all the additional dimensions architecture had and touches on in terms of how it shapes our environment, but also how it shapes our psyche in the way that we see ourselves and we present ourselves into the world. And for that reason, it seemed that then it, it was an incredibly powerful tool that unfortunately, was being used to make, in countries that are trying to develop an identity for themselves, an idea of progress. The idea of progress has been really tied to the idea of looking Western. And there was something incredibly unfortunate about that, and something lost somehow. And I was very interested in figuring out what a modernity and a contemporary architecture could be if we anchor it in the world that you know it's meant to, meaning the entire narrative of that world, the history of that world, the present of that world, and project into the future for that world. That was a very, very fascinating question for me that I was very much interested in exploring. So I just went ahead and went back to school and embarked on this adventure, essentially. And now you've practiced as an architect for almost 10 years, so do you feel like you've found those answers? Yes, I think so. I think I've definitely developed a process, hence, the again, um, the title of this exhibition, a process for uncovering these types of answers and for finding solutions. There are always multiple ones, but I always look for that moment in the creative process where I feel that it just feels right, not just because of the way it looks, but in what it does, in what the um, building brings in terms of value in the sort of interconnected layers and relationships and collaborations that it brings about in what it's able to also inject back into its context, even through the design process, the construction process, and when it's finished. It's been quite an exhilarating ride so far. Mariam Isafu-Kamara there in conversation with Monocle's Stella Ruse, and we'll be back with more from Stella later in the program. Welcome to The Concierge, a travel show from Monocle, brought to you in association with Allianz Partners. In our latest program, we trek to the Atacama Desert in Chile. As I find out, these deserts are filled with wildlife. On this trip alone, I saw all four of the six camelids that exist. Llamas, alpacas, vicuñas and guanacos. And explore the treasures of Newport, Rhode Island. The oldest continuously run restaurant in the United States where it's candle-lit with tablecloths and cosy in the spring. It's housed in a grand red barn-looking building. The Concierge, in association with Allianz Partners. Listen via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio. Next up, Theaster Gates, who also presented at the General Exhibition. The Chicago-based artist and designer has, for the past decade, realised Black Artist Retreat, an ongoing project bringing together creatives in Chicago to reflect together on their making practices, explore challenges in the industry and improve knowledge sharing. 
It's an undertaking he's documented in the film Black Artist Retreat, reflections on 10 years of convening, which is showing at the Biennale. I caught up with Theaster to talk about the goings-on in Venice, his contribution and his work with the Prada Foundation and the Dorchester Industries Experimental Design Lab. This year when, uh, when Leslie reached out and said she'd like me to participate, it was right at the same time that I was opening my pavilion for uh, Serpentine. The pavilion Black Chapel felt like the first time I was making a significant public investment in architecture. For the Biennale, I decided that given Black Chapel was about creating a space for people, that here I would focus on a film that celebrated people first and made space secondary, allowing the truth of the, the scaffolding of social networks, the ways in which people change the perfume of architecture, and how often architecture forgets people. I thought that I would highlight a film that covered the last eight years of the Black Artist Retreat, which is a retreat that I hold in Chicago, and really celebrate people and artists as a kind of living architecture. So it's about putting people first into architecture. I mean, why do you think so often people are almost an afterthought in the built environment? I don't think it's a, an intentional disregard. I think that the, the question of a building and the, the considerations necessary to make a great building are many. And so sometimes it's easier to listen to the client on the front end, figure out what the thing needs to be, and then you go away and you, and you design. But sometimes it's really hard to understand what will an atrium feel like when 200 people are in it. And I tend to think about those things while I'm making or I tend to allow people to occupy my spaces while the spaces are being built. So I have a good sense of the temperature of a room because people are always in it as I'm making. When you're designing at the scale of uh, the city, it's hard to know how to do that. But it's one of the things that I want architecture to grapple with more and more. Is your hope that, I guess, people come away from this and they, they really start to tackle with that? Or is, it, is there something else that you're hoping people that watch the film take away? Well, the first thing I hope is that by coming to the Biennale, people leave the Biennale feeling like, wow, the entire gamut of the world of architecture is covered. And so we, we need people to think about small interventions in space, big interventions in space, big interventions out of space. And, you know, what seems evident here is so many underknown, underserved communities, so many black spaces around the world, what those spaces look and feel like. I think Leslie's done an amazing job at creating a constellation of understanding of spaces that would never normally make it into the Biennale. And then my contribution with this film is to show black artists in their spaces, how we occupy space, how we celebrate, how we're critical, how we mass, and I hope that people will see a very beautiful complement to what Chicago is and not just some of the things that we see on television, which are like misnomers of violence and lack, lack, lack. I want to show joy, 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 more, more, more. Amazing. And then you're also here for Prada as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how that ties in with the Biennale as a whole? 
Yeah, so a few years ago, I approached the Prada Corporation and shared with them that I wanted to create a strategy for celebrating black designers and artists of varying kind, and that I would use the Prada platform to amplify voices that were already doing really good in their field, but maybe the fashion world didn't know of them or the bigger world, my world, didn't know of them. And they agreed to help me create this project that we call the Experimental Design Lab. We chose 14 people from a selection process. We gave them resources. We all went to Milan and looked at some fashion. We, we got to know some of the directors of the corporation. And the, the hope was to try to build a bridge between great artist thinkers and this company. And if that went well, we would be able to build more bridges to um, more designers and more companies. We're just in the second of three years of this first cohort, and already I feel like at least from our first cohort that great opportunities have come, and maybe six of us are in the Biennale out of the 14 selected. So I feel like we had our finger on the pulse of hot, hot designers, and um, maybe even by having Prada support and the amplification, they were able to be in a, in a project like this. How important is something like that and, and something like the Black Artist Retreat to nurturing creative communities? Why put so much energy into, I guess, these relationship building exercises in a way? Well, what often happens is if, if there's a history of tokenism where it seems like one guy gets all the opportunity. Well, what I'm trying to do is propose that it is true that sometimes opportunities aggregate toward key individuals, then key individuals have the ability to fragment that opportunity and share it with others. I think that I've just been preoccupied with trying to create a bunch of different ways that I can share the opportunities and access that I have. And I don't know if I'm doing it perfectly, but I feel like the thing I want to do is share the privilege of access. And this year, you know, I feel like, okay, even if others don't know what is happening with the Experimental Design Lab or the History of Black Artists Retreat, this year I feel really good about, um, in a way, my practice coming at more like a plinth to other people's great works of art and great design ideas. And to be honest, I don't feel like I've lost anything by giving it all away. One of the things that, that I've reflected on by being here is that you realize the Western canon of architecture has worked very hard to exclude some voices and some architectural forms from the canon. And whether that was intentional or not intentional, it feels very important in this moment that architectural historians, curators, creatives have the courage to find the forms that have been absent from the canon and add those forms back to the canon because they are often the spaces where you find deep sustainability, deep local material use, smart circular economies, amazing use of local labor, amazing use of local materials that could in some ways protect people from the kind of travesties and not have to export or import ideas or materials from other places. My hat's off to Leslie Loco and, and to the team for putting together such a beautiful compilation of voices. My thanks to Theasta Gates there. 
finally on today's show, we visit the Nordic Pavilion with Stella Roos, who's still sitting with me. What appealed to you about the Nordic Pavilion? We basically gave you free reign to choose one pavilion that really spoke to you, and this was the one you chose. So the Nordic Pavilion is the only pavilion in the Giardini that's actually shared by three countries, so Finland, Sweden and Norway. And this year, Arkdes in Stockholm uh, picked this project Girja Gumpi, um, which is basically perfect for the Nordic Pavilion because it covers Sami architecture, which stretches across exactly these countries and also a bit of Russia. There was a great buzz there and a lot of people lounging around on, uh, on reindeer felts and, and reading books. I mean, that sounds very appealing. Were you, were you in that number? Did you take a seat on the reindeer felts? I did end up spending a long time on the reindeer felts and talking to the curator of the exhibition, James Taylor Foster. I mean, that, that does sound nice and I'm glad it wasn't just purely recreational for you. I mean, let's jump to it and let's hear from, from your chat with James right now. Well, the basic idea is that Yuan Nango, the initiator of this project, Girdia Gumpi, is an amazing architect. And, you know, the Biennale is about bringing amazing architects, amazing ways of practice to this kind of international stage. But the Girdia Gumpi is pretty unique for an exhibition or an installation in the Biennale. It is a nomadic architecture library based in Sapmi, which is the traditional territory of the Sami people, which stretches across Scandinavia and into the Kola Peninsula in Russia. So really, it's a project that transcends these national borders. It doesn't really recognize them as such and brings to the Biennale this incredible library and archive that Yuwai and his collaborators have been building since 2015. Yuwai is, is fairly well known. Yuwai is a, an amazing generator of conversations, an amazing gatherer of people. And we came across Yuwai's work 2019. He's been working for far longer than that. And we started this conversation a year ago. And the most important thing to understand about Girdu Gumpi is not only its amazing tactility, its amazing smells, its amazing source of knowledge, but this is also a traveling library. It's come to Venice for a few months and it will return to Sapmi. Every time it opens somewhere, it grows, it expands. There are, it's grown and expanded a lot more here than it has in recent years. And that is part of that process. I mean, I've started to realize after being sat in the pavilion, it's such a privilege to be in the pavilion, sat in Girigumpi for these days when so many people are passing through the pavilion. But this is an incredibly generous space. This is the cultivation of a conversation that has been going on for many years, a conversation that is much older than the Biennale, much older than architecture as we know it, and the insights in here, the possibility to come and understand the relevance of indigenous practice, the future of indigenous Sami building techniques, of the relationship to land, of the ecologies, of material reuse, of what we might call today sustainability. They're all in here. They're all here to be learned, and it's something that needs to be communicated to the wider architectural practice. Girya Gumpi is, at its source, a social space. This is a place for gathering. You are as an incredibly social person and brings together these amazing people that have been part of this process. I don't know whether it's just me, but like every project that I seem to work on ends up having a lot of seating. This was not my idea. This is part of Girya Gumpi. But there are seats, there are reindeer skins, there are comfortable places, there are nooks, there are crannies. This is an environment not only for gatherings, but also for solitary reading, for solitary learning. So I hope 
And this is all we can hope for in the Venice Architecture Biennale, is that Giri Gumpi provides that space not only to learn, but also just to sit down and have a rest in the middle of this rather overwhelming world. The, the library is split into several categories, and these categories are constantly expanding. And one of the categories that I find most interesting is gender, sexuality, and feminism. It's a category that you might not necessarily expect to be in a project like Giri Gumpi, but of course it's completely connected to all of the ideas of indigeneity that you are is exploring and his collaborators are cultivating conversations about. One of the most interesting moments is the architecture of Sapmi mapping project, which is by three researchers that are very close to Giri Gumpi. We hope that this will become a book. And there's also a seminar that will be happening in Giri Gumpi in the early summer, which is moving towards the very first Sami architecture dictionary. So actually, not only is this a library, but I think it's starting to germinate some very important books that will help take contemporary Sami architecture forward. My thanks to James Taylor Foster there and to Stella Ruse too. I mean, Stella, we've got closing remarks now. Have you got any final thoughts on the Biennale? Maybe why should somebody visit if, if they're not an architect? Well, the Biennale this year is supposedly about architecture and there's a lot of that. Um, but it's basically also just a view on the world. I mean, you're in one park and you get to visit basically every country. And it really gives you an insight into everything that's going on in the built environment across the globe and it's something that's quite unique I don't think you get that anywhere else than in Venice right now I mean I couldn't agree more and I'm, I don't need to add anything else to that because that's all for today's show for more design stories listen to our five minute midweek bonus show Monocle on Design Extra it's out every Thursday here on Monocle Radio and available wherever you get your podcasts and if you enjoy print then pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well our June issue, which will be on newsstands shortly, is packed with stories from the Venice Biennale. Stella, which I know you reported as well, uh, I just want to say a huge thanks to you for being here and helping us cover this event, and to Maylee Evans for her production and editing work on today's show. I'm Nick Manise, and if you want to get in touch, you can reach me at nm@monocle.com. For now, goodbye, and thanks for listening.